You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. Dust is our theme as we walk through the book of Matthew all the way January through June. We are focused on uh, the the book of Matthew and divided it into chunks or segments rather of uh, of themes within the thematic overview that we're we're looking at. And so we started uh, back in the beginning of the year looking at following Jesus from the inside out teaching on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus um, speaks to his disciples and people that are onlookers in the crowd about the kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of God is not a matter of changing behavior, but being transformed from the inside out. And the second segment of the series was all about miracles, power, deliverance, and healing. Um, and Jesus was, was not just talking about the kingdom of God, but operating in the kingdom of God through power, through raising the dead and cleansing the lepers and healing the sick. And all of those miracles all had messages in them. Um, and those messages were that the kingdom of God is going to the outside. It's going to the outsiders and bringing outsiders in. And this third segment that we started last week is called Following Jesus from blindness to belief, following Jesus from a spiritual blindness into a spiritual open-eyedness, a spiritual ability to see what is really going on in the supernatural uh, ways of life and all of the natural day-to-day. And so, um, and so Jesus is, is, is kind of enamored, as we should be, um, at what happens after he gets done doing some of these healings from Matthew 8 through 10. In Matthew 11 through 13, instead of seeing acceptance, instead of seeing belief, instead of seeing faith over what is the greatest teachings and the most authoritative miracles in, in anyone's ministry, he sees instead obstinance, stubborn heartedness, rejection, and blindness. He sp- sees a spiritual deafness and a blindness, which he calls out. He says, woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, these towns that if these miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented five times over already if they would have seen these miracles. It's not about what you're seeing uh, in the natural realm that's actually causing unbelief. There's something else going on that's leading to a spiritual blindness in you, that it's not something in your eyes, that there's something going on, something going on in your heart, something going on in your mind that's closed off to the kingdom of God. And he ends the whole segment in Matthew 13 when he talks about this parable of the seed and the sower, whereby he says that the, the revelation of God, the seeds of God are spread out all around the world and on every single path and on every heart. And there's nothing wrong with these seeds. These seeds are good teachings. These seeds are good miracles. And this day and age, we have access, more access to kingdom encouragement than ever before. We have YouTubes and blogs and theology books and anything we could get our hand to to understand the the goodness of God, but yet still we don't believe. Yet still the generation is blind and stubborn-hearted. And he says, because the seeds, there's nothing wrong with the the seeds. It's it's not that God is is hiding or that God is mute or God is not speaking. Rather, there's a spiritual blindness and a a deafness in our heart. He says, it's the love of money, the worries of the world, it is, it is the fear of persecution, the fear of man that causes the obviousness of God to grow, to fall on deaf ears. That the, the, he, he's not hiding, rather he's in plain sight, but the obviousness of God falls on blind eyes because not, not because of what's going on in our eyes, but what is going on in our heart. And so maybe this is the journal we would look at for the next couple of weeks as we look at what would make us spiritually blind. Jesus, we would pray maybe. Where is pride? Where is bitterness? 
Not where is miracles, not where is my breakthrough, not where is my, my promotion, not where is my upgrade, not where is my spouse. That's not what we're needing if we look really at this passage of what actually causes faith to arise in our hearts. It's not these objective, uh, circumstantial things. Rather, it's these internal um, temperatures, uh, internal culture that goes on in our heart and our mind. Where is pride and bitterness and fear blinding me? And how would humility, surrender, and thankfulness to you open up the eyes of uh, our eyes to your kingdom. Jesus, I ask as we look at your scriptures this morning that you, would, that you would open up our eyes. God, we would find you're not hiding. You don't want to hide because you want to be found. And rather, it's not that you're, not, it's not that you're hiding, it's that we're not seeking. And God, I ask that you would teach our heart to seek you, that you teach our heart to question our own motives and realize that sometimes um, we're, we're the stumbling block, not you. That it's our heart that we stumble over, not you. That it's our heart that we're offended over and our mind that we're offended over that's closed um, and not open. That we would, that we'd receive your seed, uh, that we receive your truth and you would grow fruit, much fruit and fruit that remains. And we, we ask that you would open our eyes to see what we don't see in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm looking forward to uh, spring break. Um, coming up, which is just the week before Easter. Spring break is the week where the teachers get a break and the, the, the parents go back to work because they have the kids all week long, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and we were gifted at Christmas time this uh, trip to go to, to go to the mountains up in Pigeon Forge. And so I'm, I'm a northerner. Uh, I'm getting used to this. Um, I used to go to, you know, Palm Beach or whatever for, for spring break, but now I'm going to Pigeon Forge to Dollywood. It's going to be a fantastic time. And uh, I went up to the mountains in Jasper, Georgia, actually, to go uh, to, uh, to perform a, a wedding for my dear friend Taylor right here in Kinsey, who were just recently married. Congratulations. And, um, and, and it's like we're driving up the mountain and my blood pressure just starts to drop. You know that feeling when you're like, you know, you, you forget what, how great vacation is and you're like, okay, I'll pack all the bags and get all the kids together. And, you know, and you got all the gas and you're drinking your seventh Starbucks and you're trying to stay awake and you go up that mountain and you remember why you got there, right? Because there's a TV up there, but there's a TV at home and there's, there's a jacuzzi and I don't have a jacuzzi in my house yet, but Fred Biggers does and that's pretty great. You know, like there's these things, these amenities that you're basically gonna do all the same things the crossword puzzles and the video games and the movies and all that stuff, you're just doing it in a big wooden house, but somehow it's way better up there for some reason, and your blood pressure drops as you move up the mountain because there's something about getting away on vacation. There's something about changing the location. There's something about getting up to the mountains. I joked earlier, this is last week, during the wedding, actually just before the wedding, it was in one of these log cabins, and you opened up uh, the, the, the screen glass door or the glass door there into the balcony, and I just became a Pentecostal all over again. Like all the clouds from inside just came into the wedding, and it was just a complete complete presence of glory of God. It was a great time in there. Um, but there's something about the location that just helps us get back to zero miles an hour. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you realize when you're at zero, zero miles an hour that you haven't been at zero miles an hour for a long time. Matter of fact, even when you're sleeping, you're still going 25, 25 miles an hour. I told Matt, I had a dream about sermon prep. I was dreaming, prepping for a sermon in my mind. And I, came, I woke up and I didn't even have a sermon. I was so frustrated. I was like, wait a minute, I should have just been prepping for a sermon. I actually would have had a sermon by the end of this thing. But that's the thing, it's like we don't realize we're going 25 miles an hour all the time. Our mind is continually racing and solving problems, and we're forgetting about what it means to be at zero miles an hour until we get there. And so at the very end of Matthew 11, there's, uh, there's like this preview, uh, this coming attraction scripture that helps us uh, understand as he forecasts, as he foreshadows what's about to happen in Matthew chapter 12, he ends Matthew 11 with this statement. Uh, it says, uh, if I can find it, 
Come to me, I'll do it from memory as much as I can remember. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Is it up on the screen? I'll read with you. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle, gentle and humble in heart. It, it dawned on me the other day, because we preached, I preached off of it last Sunday, that like he, he, Jesus, um, he, he connects teaching and learning with rest. Which is really interesting to me. I was, of course, I, should, I recognized it on the way home. I should have recognized it before I started preaching. And I recognized it on the way home, so I'm like, I'll bring it up next week. But he's connecting teaching with rest. He's, he's, he's almost like he's saying, you know, you can go on vacation and still feel restless. There's ways to go on vacation and bring your anxiety with you. There's ways to be at a different location and not really rest. And then there's also ways to sleep in the middle of the storm where you have rest because of a teaching rather than because of a vacation. And he's saying, rest isn't just stopping from work. Rest is coming to me. Rest isn't um, a location or a vacation. Rest is a person. And actually in Hebrews 4, if we get into it, which we're not, but Hebrews 4 says that he is our rest. And that actually rest, Paul would say in Colossians, look, like this religious institution, the temple, it's fading away. When we get to heaven, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no hours, there's no times, there's no log cabins because there is constant communication and constant presence. And so you don't need a vacation because the entire thing is a Sabbath. And so we're we are moving into this, we're moving out of the shadow of institutionalized religion and into the, into the pure, uninterrupted connection with God and family with God, whereby we're never not under this yoke. Continuing on, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason why it's a foreshadow into Matthew 12 is because in Matthew 12, he's, he's warning his disciples and he's previewing for us as, as scripture readers here that they're going to encounter this conflict over the Sabbath. But what he's telling you is that the conflict really isn't over the day, the time, or the hour. It's not about the Sabbath. The conflict is about the yoke. It's about the teaching. It's about the way you look at the Sabbath that's, that's important. So while we get into this conflict, and we're going to get into it ourselves in Matthew chapter 12, I want you to pay attention that we're going to argue about the Sabbath, but we're not really talking about the Sabbath. We're talking about something so much deeper than the Sabbath, and this is what happens. So... It says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, now that I've found my uh, space, or maybe I haven't, uh, he says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain to eat them. So there was the, there was the, there was the ritual, the habit of the Sabbath, that since Genesis which we'll get on the screen and I won't read it, but you might cast your eyes on it and be reminded of what the Sabbath is. That there's this pattern that God has created since the beginning of creation to, to work six and rest one. There's this, there's this rhythm, right, in creation where he created six you know, days of creation. He said each one was good. And then between, between for the Jews, it would have been sunset on Friday until sunset on Saturday. That was called the Sabbath. And, 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 it's, and it's reminding us of this Genesis rhythm where we stop our work and declare that from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, there's a Sabbath. We're retreating from work. And the reason we're retreating, as it says in Genesis, he retreated from all that had done. Next slide. It says, then God blessed the seventh day. And, and this is why, because the seventh day has been made holy. Now, you got to understand this thing is that Jesus, or excuse me, that the Trinity in its creating of, of the known world, of the physical realm, didn't rest because it was tired. 
God didn't rest because if he didn't, he'd have, you know, anxiety the next week or he would feel behind in his tasks. Like God rested because he's holy, because he created something and it deserved glory. And so rest wasn't because he was tired. Rest was because worship was needed. Rest was because glory was needed to be sat in and recognized that on the seventh day it was completed. He was done with his work. And so God created this rhythm. It's almost like when you're playing a, you know, a Mozart piece, like Mozart didn't create a rest in the bar of music that he wrote because he was tired of playing piano. He wrote a rest because it recognizes the glory of the sound that just got created. It rests. And it's built in, in, into our, our human DNA just as people, let alone you know, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, that, that, that something is missing if there isn't rest. It's not because we're tired. As an aftermath of that, we do get rejuvenated. That's the effect of rest, but the cause isn't because we're tired. The cause is because God is holy, because God is good, because God has created things, and he's the creator, sustainer, redeemer, and he doesn't need us to work for the world to go around, right? Isn't that what we find out when we get up to the top of the mountain? Is like, we think the world revolves around us, and if we're not working, it's all going to fall apart. And it takes about a day and a half to realize, oh, the world will go on without me. And that's a good truth to rest in. And so in Exodus, there's this law. We'll read this one as well. It says, uh, you know, it's the fourth commandment, and I'll have to get it off uh, the screen here. In Exodus, it says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So there's the theme again, resting not because we're tired, but because God is holy. Six days you shall labor, work six and rest one. Do all of your work in the sixth day. And then, next slide. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day to the Lord for your God, uh, to your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor male or female servant, nor your animals, uh, nor any foreigner residing in your town. Next slide. For in six days the Lord, right, reminding us back of Genesis, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in it, them, uh, in them, but, the, but he rested on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. So back to Jesus. He's in the grain fields, and he's, he's celebrating this Sabbath. He's, he's abiding in what has existed from the very beginning of time, and he's in this grain field, and it says his disciples were hungry, and they ate. And the Pharisees, they challenge him. Verse 2, Matthew 12, back to Matthew 12, New Testament. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, first things first, the Sabbath uh, had these low laws and these codes to define what uh, this Exodus law would look like, how it would be applied. And technically speaking, we should recognize here that uh, Jesus and the disciples didn't break any of these laws, any of these codes, okay? Because, first and foremost, they hadn't traveled more than a half mile uh, away from their hometown, uh, which is shown and borne witness by the fact that the Pharisees hadn't broken the law and they had not traveled, you know, so they hadn't traveled any further than the Pharisees. So number one is they haven't broken the law of geography or distance. Number two is uh, there is a law within the Levitical code that says that if you're walking along in a path in a man's field, that because of the mercy built in and the charity built into the law that you could pick heads of grain if you were hungry or, or if you're starving, if you're needy. And that was part of, you know, integrated into the law. So they haven't broken any of that. The only thing that they maybe would have broken was uh, the fact that they were eating some of the heads of grain, but they didn't have a sickle. And so technically speaking, the point is, is that even in the most scrutinous measurements of the code, which there were laws upon laws upon laws upon laws, uh, they weren't breaking any of them. 
And so I actually want to, um, I don't have it on my slide this morning, but I want to read some of these uh, Mishnah uh, laws. Like, like, you know how there's like catechism sometimes in the Christian faith where there's like these extra interpretations. The rabbis back in that day would have wanted to guard the law, like put a fence around the law back in that day. So if you can bear with me, it's like the law could be interpreted in different ways and so enable to make it, make, sure, make, make it clean and clear. They wanted to create this fence to make sure that nobody could have, out of ignorance, uh, failed, stumbled, and, and transgressed on the law without knowing it. So they created a fence, like a, like a let, me, let me make the law really, really, really stringent to make sure that we didn't, um, we, we didn't uh, impose on the, the law of God. And so some of these things were um, sowing, this is, there's actually 39 different uh, categories of things that you couldn't do. Um, so here are some of them. Uh, sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. All of them actually have to do with either baking bread, creating uh, clothing, building up structures, or uh, taking care of animals. So they all have to do with all these different categories of work. Instead of just saying you can't work, they literally like defined it so you couldn't find loopholes, and they tried to make the case as airtight as possible. Grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, all the way down to 39 things. Um, now, today in the Orthodox Jewish, Jewish religion, they've had to adapt it because of things like electricity and things like you know secretary work or admin work or any other type of work because of the type of economy we live in is different. So for example, if you were to abide in the Mishnah law, this is what gardening, guarding the law would look like, or fencing off the law. Adding fresh water to a vase of cut flowers, making a bouquet of flowers, not allowed on Sunday, or Saturday rather. Uh, separating good fruit from spoiled fruit, not allowed. Brushing dried mud from boots or clothes, not allowed. If you've done this uh, today, it would have been a sin. Cutting hair or nails was a sin. Applying makeup was a sin. Braiding hair was a sin. Drawing blood for, for a blood test is a sin. Rubbing uh, soap to make lather, applying face cream, polishing shoes, using uh, scoring powder for utensils or other surfaces, um, sharpening a pencil, sin, painting or drawing or typing, sin, tearing through uh, leather packages, sin. So you can get the idea here is that then and now there's, a, there's, this, there's this law that's created by the Jewish people, by the Jewish tradition to help guard people against transgressing of the Genesis rhythm of life or the Exodus law of God, that there's these laws upon laws, as there's interpretations upon interpretations upon interpretations until there's such a stringency that here is Jesus and his disciples, not halfway a mile from their home, walking through the fields, eating heads of grain according to the Levitical code, and they are being indicted by the Pharisees, by the teachers of the law. So this is how the plot ensues. He answers them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He's like, look guys, don't you get it? Like, we're hungry. This is, these people... These disciples of mine, we've been walking around tired. We're doing the business of God, and we're in the field abiding by the code. We're eating. Like, man, he'll say it later in the passage, like, man wasn't created for the Sabbath. Sabbath was created for man. In other words, like, the point of this thing isn't to follow all the T's and the I's and making sure all the things like think bigger about this thing. It's, a, it's people needing to eat. We honor the Sabbath. Yes, we honor rest. Yes, we want to abide in the Genesis rhythm of life. But it's like we're getting caught up on the small things and missing some of the bigger themes here. He says, we're, we're hungry. He says, don't you remember? This is what happened with David back in 1 Samuel 21. Okay, he entered the house of God. He was in exile. He was running from King Saul at the time. And he and his companions ate, listen, the consecrated bread. That would be like if we had communion one day and somebody came in starving and needed bread and stole the 
communion bread off the table and ran out with it. That'd be awkward, right? And so he's like, think about what's happened in the Old Testament here. It's like King David, okay, lied about it. He's on the run from King Saul. Well, he should have been king. David should have been king, but Saul was king. And so he's running for his life. And he runs into this priest, uh, Abimelech, I think is his name, in 1 Samuel 21. And he says, we're starving. And the priest gave David and his men bread to eat and didn't sin. They were innocent in the eyes of God because mercy was more important than sacrifice, that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Didn't you get it? I remember we were in um, Upward Basketball. How many of you guys, parents of Upward, isn't that just a sweet, non-competitive Christian endeavor? And so, um, you know, there's the kid, right? His name's Stewie, okay? And, and I remember, like, he's, he's on the other team. I'm watching this kid, Stewie. He's got Velcro shoes on. He can't barely see. Okay, this is the last time he's ever going to do a physical any engagement of any sort. He's in there playing upward. He's having a great time. I'm like, this is Jesus. This is awesome. He's playing basketball. And Stewie's been at every game and every practice and, and never gets to play. He's, he's on the wrong side of the court. He's shooting on the wrong hoop. He's lost. Stewie is, is having a hard time. And it's game like 13 Stewie has never touched the ball, and somebody passes Stewie the ball. And Stewie, and this is a real thing, like it happens every season. And Stewie gets the ball, and everyone is, everyone's so excited, because we're all kind of Stewies in some ways, right? We want Stewie to win. Nobody wants Stewie to lose. Stewie gets the ball. He's dribbling. No, the other way, the other way, the other way. And so Stewie's like, oh, okay. And he's going. And finally, Stewie makes it down there. And, and, and all the other team knows it's Stewie's time to shine. It's not time to block Stewie. Get out of the way. Let Stewie shoot. And so Stewie gets the ball, and he, and he throws it up into the air. And, the, and, and, and if any Christian has any eyes to see, it's like the angels of God come down, and they just catch Stewie's ball. He's dropping into the hoop. And it's, it's what life is all about, Stewie. He made a basket, like everything, nothing is impossible. David's kill Goliath is like, this is awesome. And I'm telling you, the 16-year-old ref blows the whistle and calls a double dribble on Stewie. We can't even continue with the sermon how much offense is going on in the room right now. Let Stewie shoot. He's, it's his time in the sun. That's not the point. The kid called a double dribble on Stewie, took the points off the board. I was ready to kill him. I'm a pastor, though. I can't do that. He's like, this is, you're missing the point. You've got a starving person. In this case, it was the should have been king. If it wasn't for sin, David would have been king, in which the authority line was right. But God didn't judge David and his men for being starving in the middle of a Sabbath. If you were driving down I-85 and the minimum speed limit was 50 miles an hour, you had a turned over dump truck, you know, 20 meters ahead of you, would you continue to go 50 miles an hour? Right? There's a difference between the spirit of the law and the, and the letter of the law. And, and if you're not dumb, the spirit matters than the letter in some cases. Now, that's not to throw out the law. Hear me say that there's a balance that Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law. But the point of the law is love. Romans 13 says that the, that the fulfillment of God's law is love. The highest law, the greatest commandment, is to love God and love your neighbors as yourself. And, and all laws are important, but not all laws are as weighty as other laws. And sometimes we have to make value distinctions between what's more important, the double dribble or Stewie's making the basket. 
In this case, he's saying you're missing the point. You're blind to the law. You've spent your entire life trying to study the scriptures, but you don't understand what they say. And you're standing in front of Jesus. I'm greater than the temple and I am the Lord of the Sabbath and you still don't see me. There's something blind in you. There's something missing in the way that you're interpreting things. Then he has another analogy. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath? I mean, he uses this language here that he's not saying, oh, they were innocent and you missed the loophole. He's saying, no, they, they defaulted sometimes from the law in the name of the higher value of the law and were still counted innocent because uh, the law of love is more important than some of these other laws when put in priority. And so he says that the, the, the people that work in the temple because the thing is about holiness and the thing is not necessarily always about just stopping work, that the people that worked in the temple, I'll remind you, he's saying in the temple system, which we participate in today, this is back then, actually worked twice as hard on the Sabbath because the deal about Sabbath is being holy. It's not about stopping work. And so it is not making them guilty, the priests that is, to work twice as hard in their temple duty because temple duty is more important than, than stopping of work. Every law is important, but some laws are weightier than others. He would say it this way. You, you spend your time measuring the 10% of cumin that you're giving. In the meantime, you forget about the weightier things of mercy and justice. And in that way, you've strained out a gnat and let through a camel. You have called a double dribble on Stewie and missed the fact that he's just been built up as a man for his destiny. Which one do you care about? Because you could only have one. The letter of the law or the spirit of the law. And so he points to their blindness. I am the temple, he says, right? This is what he says in, in verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What he's really saying is, David was counted innocent by God, but I am a greater king than David is. And the person standing before you is greater than the entire temple system because you think the Spirit of God resides in those bricks over there. The Spirit of God resides in me. And you're too blind, having I spent your and dedicated your entire life to understanding the law and who God is. You're standing in front of the law lived out in flesh in this grain field right now, in front of the Messiah, and you can't see it despite your nose. He says, This is why. This is why you're blind. This is why you could spend your life in church reading the scriptures parsing through all the verbs and, and reading the commentaries and trying to understand you know, what God is saying. Getting up on Monday morning, you're going to open up your scriptures if you have a quiet reading time, and this is how you can read them and not know what they say. This is the danger of blindness, right, in our eyes, that we can see without seeing and hear without hearing. The seeds can be sprinkled on our heart and not received to, to grow up and bear fruit. He says, this is what this is, what is is the cause of your blindness. If you had known these words, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is what he's saying is the issue. He, he describes it and then he prescribes it. He's saying in your heart, your heart has value systems. It decides decisions continually all the time. A not B, you know, vanilla, not chocolate, or I decide TV versus phone or, or God versus the world or whatever. There's these value decisions going on in your heart continually. Even now, you're making decisions about values, and you don't even know the values that you have. And he's saying, he's saying we have no, no choice, no chance of understanding who we are, who God is, or what this world is about if we don't understand first this prophecy in Hosea 6.6. If you don't get this, he's saying, you can have all of the PhDs and all the seminary degrees in the world and not understand God. 
You could be a master in systematic theology and be a total punk to your wife. Totally vicious and mean and ill-spirited and, and vindictive and comparative. And you're, you're going to have all of these problems if you don't understand what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent if you understand this thing. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man is, is, is the Lord of the Sabbath. I've created the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't exist to make man obey it. The Sabbath exists to experience God and enjoy it. The Sabbath exists for God to get closer, for, for man to, to receive and get closer and, and remove the distance between God. I remember I was, um, I was, uh, I was teaching. I, used to, I tell these stories a lot, but I used to be, be a high school teacher. And, uh, and every now and again, you're in, you're in the room and they'll have this like district supervisor that'll come in with like a big, uh, they got like a checklist and they're like checking you off. They're just like, essential question, check. Shirt tucked in, check. Uh, you know, seeking for understanding, you know, uh, uh, ticket out the door, check, check, check. They have these things. It is a rubric. It's great. It's great to have a rubric. It's great to have form. It says that these are all good things that help teachers, you know, thrive. Um, there's this kid, I won't say his name, call him Johnny, comes in the room, um, and, and as a teacher, I mean, you just have to realize you're not dealing with cogs. You know, it's like you're not working at Michelin, you're working with people. And, 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 and you've got to understand, like, people bring a context, you know? Like, you're not going to make it past day two. And that's why there's a lot of transients in the teaching thing, because people, like, want little Johnnies and Marys to kind of sit in the rows and do the things, but you're never going to get that, especially nowadays when culture's changing and evolving. And it's like, you've got to understand you're not dealing with widgets, you're dealing with people. And so little Johnny comes in, and I already know from the 80% of body language that he's communicating, he's not having a good day. And I don't know what I said. I said something like, hey, we're all going to have a quiz today. And, and the guy's like, check, we're going to have a quiz. And he wrote it on his thing. And Johnny, this is, happens all the time, if you guys are not in public school system. Man, F that quiz. I ain't taking that quiz. Da -da -da -da. And, and this person that's from the district maybe has gone to jail man. I don't know if they do that at jail man, but it's outside where we're, that happened a lot. And, you know, and, 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 he's, and he's like, I I do declare that that boy has just used foul language, you know, and probably wrote it down on the notes. He's used foul language in the presence of the students. Let's get away with such a thing, Mr. Wong. What are you doing to do about that? You know? So, you know, the answer is, you know, you got to isolate the person and you got to put them into a situation where you can remove fear and establish belonging and love. Like, you've got you've to help somebody feel belonging before they can see and believe, and believing has to come before becoming. That's part of some of our value statement here in terms, in terms of a church. And so you, you take him outside, and he just got out of, um, what's the, the mental health disorder place? I can't remember. He almost committed suicide on Friday. He's having a heck of a time, and he doesn't have anybody to show him what to do. He's totally lost. And, 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 so, and so, like, in spending time with kids like that in school, I heard a preacher say this, and it was really helpful language to me. It's like, some of those kids, they're saying words like that. They're saying like the F word, the S word, all these words like that, to keep religious people out. It was important for me to hear that one time. Because like, they're, they're, trying, they're trying to test you. Like when they're trying to push at you and hit at you and swing at you, they're trying to see when you say I love you, if, they, if you really mean it. 
If you're, if, if you're able to belong with them, if they're able to belong with you, even when they're not acting deservedly, deserving of belonging, even if they're not deserving of acceptance, even if they're not deserving of love, they're firing off at you to test you because everything in, in their life is teaching them to be afraid that people won't love you when you don't behave the right way. And so what Jesus is saying is, is like the whole purpose of the law is for mercy. It's, it's not for sacrifice. The whole purpose of Jesus coming is, is, for, is for people to realize that even when, and especially when, they shouldn't be loved, that God loves them still. And that the Pharisees, much like us, when we, when we get the, the cart before the horse, when we get the law before love, when we get relationships, you know, the rules before relationships or procedures before people, we're going to become blind of what it is we're doing here in the first place. It's like, yes, we're going to deal with the F word. You don't say the F word in class. There's all sorts of reasons. But the reason why isn't because it says so on rule number seven. The reason why is because we value each other and our words create worlds. So we build each other up. We don't tear each other down. But that kid can't understand not to cuss until he understands the value of that. And he won't understand to take on that value until he can belong into that classroom. So if I'm going ahead and, you know, trying to rebuke him based on the fact that he says the F word before I handle the fact that he feels terrified of me and he thinks that I'm not going to love him depending on how he walks, talks, and, and, and speaks, then I've got no chance of ever dealing with the root issue of what he's saying and what's actually coming out of his mouth. Amen? So, so what, what he's saying in, in, in Hosea 6.6 6 and what he's showing in Matthew 12 is that there, there's a, a, a lostness, a blindness, a lack of perspective and perception that can happen in religious communities like ours where we forget that mercy is more, more important than sacrifice and, and, and that our walking with God can quickly become, easily become, you know, with, without a lot of um, effort, we can drift into uh, a life and a faith of duty and discipline and sacrifice and forget at, at, at the expense of mercy and love and compassion. What he's saying is that, is that if we lose perspective of God, then everything we do will become a sacrifice. This is the kind of sermon and sentence I would love to have on the screen. This is the way I'll put it. We, we, we begin to forget the mercy of God in our life. We know how much in our theology actually believes that I need mercy based on the mercy we show others. And what can begin to saturate our mind and our heart is a level of entitlement and a level of this, like, I deserve this, and this level of kind of like, like, like um, this, this, this kind of thing of like, I'm going to, to prove my holiness and my righteousness by showing how much I sacrifice for, for people. And, and in that realm, right? So in that way of thinking, then everything becomes a duty. Everything becomes a sacrifice. My Sunday experience when I, when I, when I come to church, into community, becomes about sacrifice. Becomes about me doing what I don't want to do. It, it becomes about... I, I want to show that I am godly. I want to show that I have it right. I want to show that I have it together. And so I don't want to with all that's within me 
come to church this morning, but I'm going to drag myself and I'm going to drag my kids and I'm going to pull myself and lift myself up by my bootstraps and life becomes about sacrifice. And then what happens is, is that if other people don't sacrifice as much as we sacrifice, then we start dotting the I's and crossing the T's with them because I worked hard to do what I do because life is about sacrifice. It's not about mercy. But a life of sacrifice implicitly has already forgotten rule number one is that our life is given to us today and only today because of mercy. Right? If I don't believe that God gives me things, if I think that, God, that I'm entitled to this life, then everything that I do is a sacrifice. Everything that I do is, is a strain. Everything that I do is a, is a paycheck. Everything that I do is earning something, is proving something. But what have I necessarily forgotten if I live in a place of proving and paycheck? I've forgotten that life itself is a gift. Not every person in, in past, present, and future enjoys the presence of God in a free environment. Not every person has the gift of community. Not every person has the gift of church. Not every person has the gift of the scriptures. Not every person has the gift of health. And it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to think that this life is about a sacrifice. I don't know how many wives in here, right? If, if, uh, if your birthday comes up or your anniversary comes up, and you're able to see the ghosts of past, present, and future and see your husband scrambling at Publix to go and buy the flowers because he forgot that it was your anniversary. And he shows up at the door and he's got the flowers and he's like, here, I'm not in trouble. Don't worry, I got the flowers. Everything's okay. I'm a good husband. I sacrificed. So we kind of somehow along the way like forgotten the point. I don't want your stupid flowers. Get the flowers out of here. I don't want your flowers. I don't want your duty. I want your love, right? I don't want your, I don't want your discipline. I don't want your sacrifice. He's like, look, this is what he says in Hosea 6. I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want burnt offerings. That's not what I came for. I came for you to experience and give mercy. The point of the law to follow it wasn't to prove your sacrifice or to prove your discipline or your duty. It's to experience mercy. The reason why you got up in the morning today is to experience and give mercy. This life is not a paycheck. It's a gift. And so today is the day about giving and receiving mercy. That's why we have blood in our veins. That's why we have breath in our lungs, because life is a gift. Is your life, this is the question I have for an intentional question, is your following of Jesus today, and I want you to take an inventory of are you the Pharisee? Because we all have a little bit of this in us. We all have a little leaven, as the Old Testament would say. Is following Jesus, is it compelled by sacrifice or his mercy? Do you see life as a paycheck or a gift? That will determine every way you look at Scripture and people. If you think that you're better than that kid because you don't say the F word, you've already missed the point. Because it's only by grace that you don't have that word on your mouth right now. If you think that 10% is a sacrifice, you've totally missed the point. He's come to get 100% and he came to give 100%. Because life isn't a paycheck. It's not about duty and contract. It's about covenant and love. And the whole thing is a gift. And to the degree that we, that we, that we believe that somehow my life is a have to rather than a thank you. That's where I'm heading with this question, right? If we go through our, our day and we start to think about the things that we're about to do or the things that we've done, if any of that moves from the category of thank you into have to, we've already missed the point. We're blind of Jesus. We'll never see him. I don't care how many church services we show up to. 
If the glasses that we put on our eyes are fogged with have to, with sacrifice, with I'm going to earn something or prove something or show why I'm better than this person or that person, we're never going to experience the kingdom of God the way it's supposed to. We might as well quit. We might as well not even do it. He says, I don't want the sacrifice. I don't want the flowers that don't get you in trouble. I want your heart. I want mercy. I want you to see that I gave you everything so that you would give everything. That's what Hosea 6 is about, and that's what the command is about, and that's what Jesus uh, walked through the grain fields that day was about to show that, listen, mercy is more important than sacrifice. So I want to show you this really great passage as we close today. In Romans chapter 12, I know what happened. My Google Doc didn't update, and that's why it doesn't have my newer things on it. Can we go to Romans chapter 12? I'm up here like, Lord, did you just have it? What happened? Is Romans chapter 12 up here, verse 1? Did I forget it too? It's going to have to get my iPhone. The reason why I chose this verse is because both of the passages appear. And I think that it gives us a roadmap in Romans 12, verse 1, to help us understand that sacrifice is a beautiful blessing. There it is. A sacrifice is absolutely part of the law, but it's not the point of the law. The point of the law is love. The point of the law is mercy. The point of the law is love, even when it's not deserved. Therefore, listen, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In other words, you're not living your life after the cross in view of sacrifice, in view of what can I go and do for God. You're living, we're living our lives, not having to prove anything, not earning any paycheck. We're living our lives in light of a gift. Never forget that this life is a gift. Never forget that the only reason why you have money in your pocket is because he gave it to you. Never forget that this whole thing wouldn't happen unless he held it together, sustained it, and held it in his hand, as Colossians says, that even, if you're not, even as you're not working, God is working and providing and sustaining and holding the whole thing together in your Sabbath. Don't forget that life is a gift and not a paycheck. You will miss everything right of the line if you forget the one that's right in the middle. Mercy. Your point of your life is mercy. The, the reason why you exist is mercy. The reason why you, you have breath in your lungs is because he's good. Because he's holy, that's the only reason why. And in light of that mercy, then we can understand the rest of the law to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifice is beautiful. Buying flowers for your wife, awesome. It's a great thing. Not double dribbling eventually for Stewie if he does make it to the NBA is wonderful. We want to encourage people to grow in their faith. But in light of mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's stand, and I'm going to read our gospel proclamation as we close in worship today. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never forget this fact. The gospel is the good news that Jesus didn't wait for us to behave, for, him, for us to belong to him. He adopted us before we did anything for him. And may we adopt and accept and love the lost, the least, especially our church, when it is that we don't behave uh, worthy of belonging. The good news that Jesus, in so doing, didn't just talk about it, didn't just have a fuzzy feeling, didn't just have a Pinterest board or an Instagram tweet or whatever. He has this, this actual death, right, to bring us into a spiritual life. It's easy to get foggy on this. It's easy to become blind on this thing. It's easy to forget what this whole thing is about. And religion will blind you. Duty will blind you. You will absolutely lose focus of who you are. You will forget who you are. You forget who he is and you will spend your life in this duty and we will meet him face to face one day and he says, he'll say, none of that mattered. 
None of that mattered if it wasn't in light of my mercy. None of it mattered if it wasn't a thank you to a gift. None of it mattered if it was a have to instead of a get to. None of that mattered if it wasn't in light of this gospel. And we have to teach ourselves and remind ourselves of what this thing is about in the first place. Jesus loves us. Jesus loved you. He died uh, to, to give you a gift, not to earn you a paycheck. He died for our sins so that we can have close relationship with God for eternity. That was the whole point of the law. If there was uninterrupted intimacy and if there wasn't sin, there wouldn't need to be a law. The whole purpose of the law was to create relationship. The rules are for relationship, not vice versa. If you trust that Jesus' death is the only way to spiritual life, you can receive eternal and abundant life today through prayer. I want to tell you if this is your first time at this church or maybe first time in a long time since you've been to a church, that, that coming towards Jesus isn't about earning, it's just about receiving. And so that last line in there, it's, it's prayer is, is, is this point of faith. I call prayer is like the ticket. You know, you can't create an airplane. None of us, I don't think anybody's works for Boeing and create an airplane, right? Grace is the airplane. Faith is the ticket. Faith is, is the simple ticket. And the ticket, you do need the ticket. That's part of it. You do need to have that faith. There does need to be a, a profession and a prayer, but nothing in that ticket it's just made of paper. It's not going to get you anywhere other than the power of God in your life. So I want to give you an opportunity today and respond or respond again if, if you feel like you, you, you don't know God, if you're not close to him. I want to encourage you that all it takes is a yes. All it takes is a, is a faint, small whisper that says, God, I want you. God, I need you. God, I'm not enough without you. God, I want you. God, I need you. I'm not enough without you. And we all need to pray this prayer. We're all on level ground in that way. But if it's the 99th time or if it's the first time, I want to invite you to do it today and don't wait. Jesus, we, we come towards you by grace and not by work. Uh, we come towards you because you've given a gift. We thank you for this gift of mercy and may we never take it for granted. Thank you for wild eyes and pure hearts. Thank you for the ability to see you and see you in the scriptures that we would never live a day of sacrificial duty and not see the mercy that you've surrounded us with. We love you and respond to you because we want to, not because we have to. This morning in Jesus' name. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.